Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gitler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 28 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, August the 9th. First... Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'll be talking to Rod North, founder and managing director of Boss Communications. North has survived four market booms and busts working in the financial services industry for 30 years, and he'll give his assessments of which way the market will go in 2019-20. And then I'll be talking to Alex Joyner, Chief Economist of IFM Investors, and we'll be talking about the economic outlook in the context of a reporting season starting this week. But now, let's talk to Rod North. Rod North, uh, tell us about how you see the markets performing in 2020. Well, we're at a very pivotal point at the moment because we've just seen the All Ordinaries Index in Australia get to its all-time high. And that's taken nearly 12 years, um, where we saw the index get to 6,873.2. And that happened last week. Interestingly enough, we're now getting close to um, 6,900. In fact, today we've just gone through that level. So I think the big opportunity is that we will see the market reach another all-time high. And in the cycles of the market over, say, the last four uh, four booms and busts from sort of 1980 when the resources boom there, the index got to 1,000 for the first time. Then in the lead-up to... 1987, we got to 2,260. 
um, in October, 19th of October, very defining moment that many of us remember, where the market dropped 50% and it went down to 1,650, literally overnight. Then it took a few years for the market to rise through 2000, 2001, when we had a lot of technology companies uh, listing on the ASX, and then we saw the tech boom and bust. It then took many years to work its way up to the peak, which was 6,873.2 on the uh, in November of 2007. But it's nearly taken us 12 years to get back there. So, but what's happened is a lot of the conditions in the market have changed, which have removed things that would stop a market from rising. A lot of it was to do with political uncertainty in Australia, and that got resolved in May. We've seen the reserve bank drop rates twice, so we're at a cash rate of 1%, with a lot of talk still that the cash rate could come down further. My view is we could see uh, 75 basis points or 0.75. Um, if that happens, what it's done is it's basically forcing investors to have limited places that you can put money. With very little return in cash, the share market is a major beneficiary, because in the top 50 to 100 stocks, companies are paying um, dividends and you get a return or a yield anywhere between 4 to 6%. So that's an attractive place to put your money. So some people are investing in the share market, would you believe, for the first time now, even though the market has been rising since it bottomed in March uh, 2009 at an index of 3,109, they're investing now in a market that's getting close to an index, an all ordinary index of 7,000. But there's got to be a note of caution in it because your capital is not secure necessarily. So you might invest $100,000 in bank shares at a yield of 4 or 5%, but you don't want to be losing any of that capital. Baby. We've seen uh, the market reach a record back in November, November 2007. Correct. And then we had the global financial crisis. We did. We did. And, th and that took basically, Leon, two years for us to reach a bottom, which was March um, 2009. And it's taken us a long period of time, probably the longest. In I've done a lot of analysis on share market performance um, over the last 140-odd years. And in every case, the market has always reached and then surpassed its previous high until this time. But that happened last week, and it was a 12-year gap to basically get to that level, which is unheard of. And you look back and think, what were the reasons for that? To me, a lot of that had to do with the fact that we had a GFC and we've had way too many prime ministers running the country since John Howard departed in 2007. Uh, and that's affected, I think, people's psyche about is the country being managed well? Um, what prospects are there to incentivate people in small business? Is our tax rate too high? All these questions are sort of left up in the air and it, it affected the performance of companies uh, over that period of time where many had performed okay, but a lot could have performed a lot better. And I think when we saw the election in May, where the government got returned, which of course surprised most people, it removed that uncertainty. But yet, you know, the current um, Morrison coalition government still would approve itself uh, in office, but it gave a kick and a level of confidence. And then with a couple of interest rate decreases, it's given the market some, some head. So I think as we move towards the end of 2019 into 2020, the backdrop is going to still be very good for companies to perform. Over the next couple of weeks, we've got the um, 
the market um, results coming out, um, so the reporting season will be in the full swing. The, f the first half of this particular cycle of calendar year uh, to 31st of December reported 93% um, of companies returned better results. Uh, I think there's a very high expectation that for the completion of this financial year to the 30th of June when companies report over coming weeks that the results will still be very good, which will keep driving the market higher. If companies are able to deliver earnings that are sustainable, the market will continue to rise. But the big question is where could the Australian share market go? Uh, I certainly was prepared to say it would get to 7,000. We could actually see that sooner than we think because we're not far away from it now. We're less than 100 points away from that. So I think we could see 7,500 or even 8,000 into 2020 because the backdrop is going to be what's going to be happening in the US, which will be an election um, in 2020 in November. And I think um, Donald Trump may be many things, but he is certainly a clever businessman when it comes to looking at how to position his best chance of being re-elected. So he will want the US economy to continue to be powering ahead. He will want unemployment to continue to stay low. He will probably want to see interest rates start to come off, and there's a bit of talk that the Federal Reserve might do that now. All of these things will mitigate for maybe a higher Dow Jones, which is taking us beyond you know where it currently is at 27,000. Wasn't that long ago, as I'm sure you remember, when the Dow got to 10,000, we thought it was high. Uh, so into 2020, in the lead up to the US election in November um, next year, I think we're still going to see some pretty powerful uh, share markets. Uh, and a lot of it's because investors have got very little space and, and, and movement in, as to where to put their money. That may be, but the banks have been on Wall Street have been reporting lower earnings because of fears of uh, what's happening with trade wars. Yes. And uh, people are very anxious because of the asset volatility. I think that's right. And I think a lot of um, the banks have had to look at how they can reinvent themselves and reposition themselves to maintain or improve their earnings because ultimately earnings will drive the market up. And if banks are under pressure and they can't maintain their dividends going forward, you know, there is a chance that you could see some substantial reversals in some of those companies' fortunes uh, as well. Um, and people are changing their view in respect to loyalty uh, as well, and, and, and lots of other groups are sort of reinventing themselves and trying to position uh, for opportunities. And the customer, ultimately, or the investor, um, you know, can can move, you know, if, if, if those companies are not performing. So it's certainly, you know, putting the spotlight on them. Well, the issue too is uh, the potential for fallout from the trade wars. I mean, it's in Donald Trump's interests and his pitching to his base yes. uh, to uh, keep the pressure on China. Yes, and I think, interestingly enough, with China, um, I've always had a fascination because my grandfather was one of the first commercial travellers in Australia to visit China in the 1920s. Um, so I, as a child, I used to go to his house and the house had lots of various antiquities and so forth around them, which as a young child of five or six used to scare me a little bit. Some of them were pretty frightening. Um, but China um, now and where we're positioned from Australia's perspective, we're in the hundred years of growth in this particular region, in the Southern Hemisphere, in the Asia Pacific region. Australia, we're in the same time zone. We can really benefit from that. And I've always taken the view over 500 years of uh, of of growth in markets and, and movement of, of 
countries that were dominating in that period from the Habsburg Empire through to rise and fall of the British Empire, America, then Japan, and then now from the late sort of 90s right through to China, there's been 100 years of shifts of wealth. We're in the 100-year shifts of wealth for the Asia-Pacific region. Australia can really benefit from that. Our difficulty is we have allegiances both towards America from defence and from um, history, but we also have loyalty to China for trade. Uh, and I do think from the US and China position that Trump will, Donald Trump uh, will look to do a deal with China because he won't want that to not occur in the lead up uh, to the next election uh, for him, which will be November next year. And I think from an Australian perspective, um, we are going to see China surpass America um, in terms of the biggest economy in the world in the next few years. Uh, the interesting thing is America and Europe don't quite get that, 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 that their, their centuries are passed in respect to shifts of wealth. The shifts of wealth are clearly to this region. Australia can benefit most from that. Well, summing up, you would say that uh, from now until November 2020, uh, the markets will be looking up in, in, in Australia and America? Yes, I think that's right. I think um, it's probably 2021 that we have to look out for. But I think all the uh, stars are aligning for stronger markets over the course of the next uh, 12 months and into the end of 2020. Well, Rod North, I'm sure everyone will be fascinated to hear that. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leo. And now let's talk to IFM Chief Economist Alex Joyner. Alex Joyner, the, uh, next week we have the profit season starting and uh, this is in the face of a weakening economy with the Reserve Bank dropping interest rates twice in the past two months. And um, how do you think profit season would go, broadly speaking, and what does it mean in terms of, and of course we had the CPI figures coming out the other week, uh, what, do you see, what do you see the outlook be? From a very much macro perspective on, on equity markets, you know, it's a challenging environment. Um, the Australian economy has decelerated in terms of its growth rate and the nominal environment in which companies are operating hasn't been good, um, save for external-facing companies, and those are primarily in the resources sector. And we, we all know about the significant increases in iron ore prices, really, that are underpinning some of those um, valuations in, in the resources sector. But the thematics that have been characterising the Australian economy over the last you know, two to three years are, are still persisting. So it's a very, very challenging retail environment, for example. The consumers are under pressure. Uh, you know, wages growth hasn't come through. Incomes growth hasn't come through. And that's really translating into a situation where you see discretionary retailers uh, under particular pressure, uh, whereas... You know, those non-discretionary sectors, services sectors, are doing uh, relatively relatively better in that space. But, you know, that's a thematic that's been playing out for some time. So we can expect this to play out in the current profit reporting season coming up? Well, that would be the expectation. It really has to be, be companies that are differentiating themselves in the current environment and, and catering to consumer needs in particular that would need to be, um, you know, performing... Uh, a little bit better, you would think. Um, but, you know, the traditional retail space, I, I would think in particular, would be under pressure as those those pressures from the demand side, so pressures from a weak consumer, but also cost pressures from rise, rising wages and a lower Australian dollar, 
are sort of starting to really eat away at margins. Now, uh, of course, the latest CPI figures came out, and they came out at 1.6%, which was mm-hmm. marginally better than expected, but that was thanks to fuel prices, as far as I can read it. Um, how do you see that tracking? Well, inflation has been absent from the Australian economy for some time. You know, the Reserve Bank hasn't met its inflation target for an extended period of time. Um, you know, it was last in the Reserve Bank's target band uh, in a in a core sense uh, back in 2015. So it's been tracking underneath where the Reserve Bank wants it to be for, so for four years. For four years, they've missed their target, and they've only now. Uh, sought to adjust policy to try and remedy that. And it's, it's interesting to see whether they will be able to do that. Um, inflationary pressures have been absent just because growth has been around potential and not really performing above that, but also because on the household side, wages growth hasn't really picked up as the Reserve Bank hoped that it might. Um, so the, the numbers that we saw um, for the June quarter, you know, while... Showing, showing a little bit of a pickup, as you say, you know, the headline figure was dominated by a, say, a 0.3 percentage point increase in fuel prices, adding to that 1.6. And then we saw some other seasonal factors such as holidays overseas and, and private health insurance that comes through in the second quarter, all adding to that 1.6. So really, the underlying message there was one of just tracking sideways, you know, the core measures of inflation decelerated slightly. That trimmed mean measure that the Reserve Bank um, continues to focus on is at 1.6%, basically in line with their forecasts. But they really need a sustained um, and consistent increase over the next sort of six quarters uh, in that trimmed mean measure, even to get uh, that measure to 2% year on year. Uh, They're expecting that by 2020 and that will get them to the bottom of their target band. So in that environment, as Phil Lowe has said, um, there's really no uh, threat that interest rates will rise anytime soon, and indeed there's probably need for further support from the Reserve Bank later in this year, uh, particularly if the unemployment rate was to start to edge up. Now, of course, uh, we're importing low inflation from overseas. It's happening everywhere, isn't it? Uh, That's right. Um, Because we import a lot of our consumer goods from overseas, countries like China, um, we've been importing um, deflation for a long time. And the way that feeds through to the CPI is is twofold. You know, we're getting cheaper prices from from imported goods, but also we have a quality adjustment in the CPI. So that drags the CPI lower. And what I mean by that quality adjustment is I give the example of a, of a flat screen TV. A flat screen TV, you know, five years ago might have been $5,000 for a 42-inch screen. Now you're paying the same amount for a much bigger screen, a much flatter screen, and a much more high-tech product. So in the CPI, that would actually drag the CPI lower because of that quality adjustment. And that's something we're seeing in you know, audio-visual equipment, um, uh, motor vehicles and those sorts of items where you've seen that those quality improvements come through. Right. And of course, the Fed has just cut its rate for the first time in a decade. And uh, that sent a signal that it could do it again. Well, that's right. You know, the Fed has, has 
really uh, shifted its tack um, since late last year and, and certainly now is much more concerned about global uh, economic development and the volatility that you're seeing there with US and China trade tensions probably being the most prominent, among, prominent amongst those. But it's also seeing domestic uh, slowing of, of the uh, US economy and, and the inflationary pressures in the US economy <clears throat> excuse me, have really um, not materialised the way they thought they might. So in that environment, the Fed's given us what they've called an insurance cut. Um, so not saying things are, are terrible in the US economy, but really wanting to underpin that growth narrative going forward. Now, the market's probably been a little bit aggressive on on what they think would happen with you know further aggressive cuts, three or four more cuts coming. Um, you know, Jay Powell probably tried to push back on that narrative and that this was not going to be a, a long series of aggressive hikes but more, you know, a, a watch-and-wait approach from the Fed. Um, I probably have sympathy for that view because, you know, the US economy is still doing relatively well. Uh, growth's quite good, round potential, and an unemployment rate that is still very low, I think. Unemployment there is about a 50-year low. That's right, um, you know... The US has been an economy where, uh, unlike Australia, uh, the unemployment rate has dipped well below their full rate of employment, or Nehru, and that's why they've been able to get those wage pressures in the US economy that have been absent here. Um, but if you start to see some softer payrolls numbers coming through, then I think that really puts some pressure on the Fed to keep going uh, with this easing. But I really think that they'll want to be monitoring the data and, you know, as economists say, uh, further cuts will be more data dependent rather than baked into a to an easing cycle that they've already planned. And of course, the everyone is expecting the RBA to cut rates again this year, possibly next year as well. Well, that's right. I, I think what most economists have seen now is that the employment growth that we've enjoyed for the last couple of years uh, has started to decelerate. Now, we've actually done very well on employment, and you've got to give the Reserve Bank credit there. Um, you look through the numbers and you compare Australia to the US and Australia has had twice the amount of employment growth the US has. But we've just had also twice the population growth and a rise in our participation rate. So that's been frustrating the Reserve Bank getting that unemployment rate lower. And that is really the RBA's problem. They haven't been able to erode spare capacity in the labour market and get those wages growth uh, picking up the way that they would want and the way that that's occurred in other in other advanced economies. So, you know, the vacancy numbers that we look at, you know, the business surveys that we look at have all pointed to a slowing rate of employment growth. And in an environment where population will still be strong and participation rate remains elevated, that sees the unemployment rate starts to edge up uh, towards the back half of this year. And that's really what the Reserve Bank doesn't want to see. So the pressure will be on them uh, if, the res if they see the unemployment rate tick up to, say, 5.3, 5.4. Uh, by the end of this year, the pressure will really be on them to start easing rates again. And that's when we have to consider what they will do next as they reach very, very low interest rates in Australia. Could we see the Reserve Bank engage in quantitative easing? Well, I think we have to start to think about what that might look like. Um, it won't be the sort of the outright government bond buying that you've, you've seen in other, in other jurisdictions, but the Reserve Bank will be wanting to look at ways it can facilitate the pass-through of its monetary policy 
uh, through to the end users, so the household sector, and in particular, I think, the business sector. So the way that it facilitates that liquidity is sort of an open question that it, it's starting to think about, and I think economists are starting to think about that as well as we reach sort of the lower bounds of effective policy. Well, I would say they would have to learn lessons from the United States because when the United States went down the path of QE, all that benefited was the market and not the economy. Well, that's right, and that's something I think we have to be cautious of, even in the current environment, because you know we we talk about the Fed put, I guess, in in the U.S. context. You know, Fed at least being perceived to underpin equity markets, um, and that's something that you know <clears throat> is prominent uh, when you when you talk to economists around what the Fed's actions are. They're sort of sometimes being characterised as being a uh, captive to the market. You could make a similar argument with the Reserve Bank. And the property market, uh, the Reserve Bank stepping in there, underpinning the economy, but also serving to see asset markets and, in the Australian context, property markets um, be underpinned by that monetary policy as well. And I think we need to be careful when we're considering easier policy still, just what the negative uh, impacts of that policy might be. And, you know, Australia's got very high household debt um, and, you know, going further and further towards the zero lower bound of, of policy rates, you know, is only going to exacerbate that problem that the Reserve Bank will eventually have to face uh, down the track. Well, Alex Jordan, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Liam. So what's happening in the news? Well, this week saw global markets suffering sharp falls as a fallout from US President Donald Trump's dramatic escalation of trade tensions with China continued to rock the world economy. Asian and Australian stocks were a bloodbath, with Europe and US stocks both joining the worst pile-up since the trade war began. The global trade tensions escalated when the United States renewed its tariff war with China, sending major stock index tumbling as fears of an economic slowdown rattled investors around the world. President Donald Trump's threat on August 1st to put 10% of tariffs on the remaining $300 billion of Chinese imports that aren't subject to his existing levies sent markets tumbling from Asia to Europe and in the United States. The new tax would hit American consumers and businesses are going to face even more supply disruptions. Bloomberg Economics' initial estimate of the additional costs of US tariffs and Chinese retaliation sees both economies taking a 0.2% hit to GDP by 2021. Meanwhile, a simmering trade fight between Japan and South Korea is boiling over, putting the health of two Asian export powers at stake. In Europe, concerns are mounting for a hard UK exit from the European Union. And then the trade war got worse and entered a more dangerous phase, with China responding to Donald Trump's tariff threat, letting the yuan tumble to the weakest level in more than a decade and asking state-owned companies to suspend imports of US agricultural products. This sends stock markets down on fears that it will escalate the Sino-American trade war and is almost guaranteed a superpower showdown. It is a clear sign that Beijing is prepared to use the currency as a weapon and let the trade war drag on. And as the uncertainty from the trade war continues, it takes an increasing toll on the global economy. The US responded by officially naming China as a currency manipulator, a statement which will intensify tensions between the world's two largest economies. Stocks and emerging market currencies sank on concern. A prolonged conflict between the superpowers will weigh on global economic growth, while haven assets, including the Japanese yen, 
US Treasuries and gold climb. Investors increase bets on Federal Reserve interest rate cuts. The harder line underlines a growing feeling in Beijing that Trump can't be trusted to cut a deal and that China would be better off waiting to see if a Democratic presidential candidate, many of whom have criticised the use of tariffs, takes office. That prospect, which would see Beijing using the value of its currency as a weapon to strike back at the Trump administration, shook world markets as nervous investors in Europe and Asia look for safe places to park their money. The question now is whether Beijing will fully weaponize its currency, allowing it to significantly weaken in value versus the American dollar. It could also ripple across the globe, forcing countries that compete with China to consider devaluing their own currencies. That could lead to a zero-sum spiral of devaluations that would damage global growth and lead to even more trade protectionism, threatening the world's economic integration. As economist Paul Krugman noted, Trump's latest tariffs is the world trade equivalent of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, the event that tripped an uneasy situation into an all-out war. Watch this space. And trade tensions have seen the Volatility Index Futures Index rising to the highest level since the 31st of January, jumping 1.6 points to 27.27. The VIX futures on the Chicago Board Options Exchange were 20.9 points last Monday, but jumped to 25.68 by the end of the week, after US President Donald Trump announced a further 10% tariff on $300 billion worth of Chinese imports to the US. Director at Triple Three partner Simon Ho, which focused on volatility in the US market, says the one's sudden depreciation is the first big surprise the market has seen for some time, and this is pushing the VIX futures higher, when normally the futures do not react as much. This is unusual, and he hadn't seen it for the past three years. And the Reserve Bank has taken a breather from cutting interest rates, leaving its official cash rate at the historic low of 1%. Having cut rates at its June and July meetings, the market had largely anticipated the decision. Even so, the bank warned that Australia needed more economic stimulus amid a slowing economy, hit by a weaker housing market and the Sino-American trade war. It may just be a pause, with expectation of a rate cut next month hovering around 50%. Markets are fully pricing in a rate cut by November, and another rate cut by May next year. With trade tensions running high and accusations of currency manipulation in the air, the Reserve Bank is likely to cut rates again, even if the household sector does pick up a little. And this is particularly with warnings about the economy, as Deloitte's biannual CFO sentiment survey and report found that net optimism among CFOs is down 60% from 73% 12 months ago, and net pessimism about the Australian economy has grown since the end of 2018 from 8% to 22%. And ANZ Australian job ads rose for the second month in a row in July, posting growth of 0.8% after the jump of 4.9% in June. These two consecutive gains follow the election-impacted plunge of 8.3% in May and the previous weakness. Despite the gain for the month, July job ads are 9.1% lower than the prior year, a touch weaker than the 9% annual decline recorded in June. On the plus side, Australia's monthly trade surplus has smashed its previous record to hit $8.04 billion, putting a current account surplus within reach for the first time since 1975. China's insatiable appetite for mining commodities underpinned the trade surplus in June, with strong iron ore prices and export volumes helping beat the earlier $6.2 billion surplus record set in May. On the downside, imports of cars and machinery for business fell, which means no one is buying. 
A new Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show a slowdown in the decline of lending to households and businesses, with the value of new lending commitments to households rising 1.3% in June 2019. The rise in new lending to households in June follows a 1.6% fall in May 2019. And the Australian Privacy Commissioner is cautioning Facebook to learn from its mistakes and explain exactly how it will protect people's financial information when it launches its own cryptocurrency. Facebook says its new cryptocurrency company, Libra, will allow money to be sent the same way as a text message. Australia is one of seven countries asking Facebook to explain how people's financial data would not be shared without consent. The Privacy Commissioner says the company needs to learn from its mistakes before launching Libra in 2020. The social media giant and a consortium of partners are set to launch the new global digital currency next year. But Australia is one of many countries demanding the fine print now. And the Morrison government has formally reopened the highly contentious debate on nuclear power by referring the issue to a parliamentary committee with it to report by the end of the year. Energy Minister Angus Taylor has asked the House of Representatives Standing Committee on the Environment and Energy to inquire into the nuclear fuel cycle, the first inquiry into the use of nuclear power in more than a decade. It will consider the economic, environmental and safety questions involved in nuclear power. The government's present policy is a moratorium on nuclear power, and Taylor reiterated that. Labor immediately attacked the move for an inquiry, which follows some backbench-stirring coalition ranks, including from National Barnaby Joyce and Keith Pitt and Liberal Senator James McGrath. And Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch's Fox has made its first move into the fintech sector with a $585 million acquisition of ASX-listed Credible Labs, allowing Fox to diversify its business under pressure from Netflix and give it an online service that matches personal borrowers and lenders seeking to service the $1.6 trillion a year US mortgage market. Credible Labs, which provides an online market in the US for consumer lending, will merge with a subsidiary of Fox. As part of the merger agreement, Foxcore will pay $265 million for 67% of the company, in addition to a $75 million growth capital commitment to Credible Labs over approximately two years. Credible provides consumers with a personalised experience to compare rates from multiple financial institutions regarding student loans, personal loans and mortgages. The deal will pull Credible founder and chief executive Stephen Dash, 35, on the young rich list. He will remain in his role at the company. He holds 43.5% of the company, but as a result of the deal with Fox, will exchange 33% of Credible Labs' equity into units in a newly created Fox subsidiary. Fox Corporation Executive Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Lachlan Murdoch said Credible has tremendous synergy with core Fox brands such as Fox Business and Fox Television stations and would benefit from Fox's audience reach and scale, driving strategic growth, further developing brand verticals and deepening consumer relationships. And resources magnate Clive Palmer has caved into liquidators and settled the majority of the $200 million lawsuit over the collapse of Queensland Nickel. What's important here is he has struck a deal with government-funded liquidators chasing $66 million in unpaid entitlements for refinery workers. The workers will finally get their entitlements. In a statement, Mr Partner says all payments to creditors will be made in full, as well as reimbursing all money paid under the government's Fair Entitlements Guarantee Scheme. And the Asia-Pacific medicinal cannabis market has been tipped to hit up by two companies involved in the launch of a new Australian-based marijuana cultivation business. 
Australian startup Greenfield MC, which was launched in 2018 as an importer and distributor of medicinal cannabis, will now become a grower under the terms of a new deal with US Canadian company Emerald Plants Health Source. The two companies will create a joint venture business, Greenfield MC Cultivation, which will develop a cannabis growing operation in Australia for export across the Asia-Pacific market. There are 20 organisations listed on the Australian Office of Drug Control's website as having secured a licence to cultivate medicinal cannabis, although it is unclear how many have actually started producing. EPHS, which is licensed to grow and distribute cannabis in Canada and listed on the New York OTC Stock Exchange, is anticipating the Asia-Pacific medicinal cannabis market will become the world's largest as demand for cannabis-based treatment grows. A study conducted by London-based cannabis industry lobbyist Prohibition Partners and funded by the cannabis growers and distributors estimates the Asian market being worth as much as US $5.8 billion, that's $8.5 billion Aussie, by 2024. Locations are now being scouted for the Greenfield EPHS growing operation and the Queensland Sunshine Coast is a current front runner, the company said, thanks to its favourable climate and natural light cycle. The business is due to be operational by late 2020 and will employ about 200 people across farming, lab work and security. The Greenfield EPHS deal comes as Australian actor Olivia Newton-John has thrown a spotlight on the therapeutic benefits of cannabis. The Grease star told 960 Minutes program that the plant has greatly relieved her pain symptoms related to breast and bone cancer, increasing her energy levels and mobility. And Woolworths has signed an exclusive partnership with US-based grocery startup Takeoff Technologies to build automated micro-fulfillment centres in supermarkets or liquor stores to speed up online deliveries. Under the partnership, Takeoff Technologies will build an initial three fulfillment centres, warehouses where incoming orders are received, processed and filled for Woolworths within the next 12 months. Woolworths will evaluate the suitability of the technology before deciding whether to roll it out to more sites. The move is aimed at speeding up online deliveries by placing compact fulfilment centres closer to customers rather than industrial areas and using automation to bring products closer to pickers rather than having staff walking up and down the aisles of supermarkets or dark stores to locate products. Boston-based Takeoff Technologies builds compact automated fulfilment centres within the existing footprint of supermarkets and liquor stores using automation, robotics and vertical shelves to minimise the space required. Takeoff's technology reduces the cost to serve, leading to savings for both retailers and shoppers. Now, Woolworths is catching up with Coles, which in March signed a long-term agreement with British-based online grocery company Ocado to build two highly automated fulfilment centres in Melbourne and Sydney at a cost of as much as $150 million. And the profit reporting season is underway. So here are the results so far. Commonwealth Bank of Australia has unveiled an $8.49 billion cash profit for the full year, down 4.7% and below market expectations, as the nation's largest bank was restrained by customer compensation costs, higher operating expenses and reduced fee income. Suncor's annual profit fell 83.5% from a year ago to $175 million, stemming largely from the $910 million non-cash loss following the sale of life insurance and wealth arms. Transurban reported a 63% drop in statutory net profit due to $295 million of stamp duty and integration costs associated with the West Comex acquisition, higher finance costs, and a lower income tax benefit. 
Excluding acquisition-related costs, the company delivered a 12.3% rise proportional earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization to $2 billion, while proportional toll revenues rose 10% to $2.58 billion. And Shopping Centres Australasia recorded a statutory net profit after tax of $109.6 million, which was down by 37.4% on the same period last year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Yanir Yakotiel, founder and CEO of Aussie fintech SME lender Lumi. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Grian, focusing on his proposal for an evaluator general. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBioz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.